Microhistory, you know, it's not going to answer all of the questions. It's not going to be able to really scale up in a super convincing way. But what it can do is disrupt what you think you know about certain categories. And that's really what I found this case to do. It really disrupted certainly what I had read in the secondary literature about citizenship, especially in North Africa and the Middle East. For a long time, I was sort of stuck in these categories, particularly the categories of citizenship and nationality, and thinking about them through this European lens. And through this case, I was able to finally sort of say, okay, you know what? A lot of this just doesn't work, and we need a whole new approach to understanding what I ended up calling legal belonging, which is this sort of more abstract category, which I felt like was much better suited, certainly to the North African context that Nisim Shamama came from, but more generally to a kind of transnational case that crossed over between North Africa, the Ottoman Empire, and Europe. When Nisim Shamama, a wealthy Tunisian Jew living in Livorno, Italy, suddenly died in 1873, a fierce lawsuit ensued over his grand estate. At the time of his death, he was considered one of the wealthiest men in Europe. But this fight over Shamama's riches was no ordinary family dispute. Before his estate could be divided between heirs, Italian courts had to first figure out his nationality to decide which law to apply to his estate. Was Nisim Shamama still a subject of the Bay of Tunis? Was he an Italian citizen? What of his Jewishness should that be considered his nationality? Or had he become stateless after hastily leaving Tunisia for self-imposed exile? In this episode of Ottoman History Podcast, we'll trace the history and explore the implications of this decades-long case that was spanned regional, cultural, and increasingly narrowly defined political borders. And through our conversation with Jessica Margolin about her prize-winning book, The Shamama Case, we'll discuss what the case revealed about changing notions of citizenship and nationality in the late 19th century Mediterranean world, how it offers us insight into the way legal belonging was formulated and proved, and finally, what it reveals about contemporary European citizenship and border regimes. I'm Brittany White. Stay tuned. I'm so excited to talk. First of all, I mean, off, not off the record, on the record. I really love the book. It was so, it was such a joy to read. And I mean, I'm sure you know that sometimes scholarly writing isn't always super fun, <laughs> but yours was really fun and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. That was, that was a goal too, actually, to, to make it something that would be sort of intellectually satisfying, but also pleasurable to read, or at least pleasurable for those people with some vague interest in the subject. Yeah. So I'm just going to start off with a very broad question. Why did you write the book? Oh. What made you? <laughs> it's a great question. I, you know, I actually came to the subject of Nisim Shamama sort of, you know, through like a, one of those footnote things, you know, I was writing a different article and I was um, going down a rabbit hole about this rabbi who's a kind of fairly minor character in the book, Elia Benamozeg, who was a Kabbalist and a philosopher and a rabbi in Livorno in Italy, and also a printer. And I was working on some other North African rabbi who had printed some books with, with Ben Amozeg, and I just wanted to know more about him. So I was looking him up, and I found that he'd written this 
book about the Shamama case. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard about that. And it was the only legal thing that he'd written. Ben Amozig really wasn't uh, like a, a legal scholar. That wasn't what he was known for. And as a legal historian, I was sort of intrigued. And um, so I kind of looked up the Nisim Shamava thing. And then it turned out that there was all of this stuff written mostly, actually, I started getting at it through the responsa literature in Hebrew, the Tishuvot, which is like fatawa for those more familiar with the Islamic context. Um, and, you know, there was just basically dozens of publications by different rabbis that I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. And when I first started, I thought, oh, you know, it brings together Jewish law and Islamic law and, you know, Italian law, European law. And that was my kind of initial sort of foray. Uh, but when I got to the archives, I think what really convinced me was to, to write a book about the subject was just the sense that the people involved were so fascinating and that I could really kind of get a little bit at the characters. And this is something that, you know, historians obviously know how hard it can be to really get to know the historical figures that they're writing about if they're not already kind of famous. Nishim Shababa was very rich, but he wasn't that famous at the time. And definitely not after his death. He was sort of largely forgotten. So I think I was really drawn in um, by the people. And, and then, the you know, I was still interested in this sort of convergence of multiple legal systems um, multiple sort of discourses of normativity. And I was really drawn to the transnational aspect, the idea that I could write a book about North Africa that would involve, you know, certainly the Ottoman Empire, but also Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe part of it was just this idea that I wanted people who didn't think North Africa was important to realize that North Africa actually is really interesting, even if you are an historian of Italy or France or... Exactly. So at the end of his life, Nisim Shamama, a Tunisian Jew, a man at the center of your new book, became an Italian citizen by decree. Can you tell us the political and economic crisis in Tunisia and how that prompted Nisim to leave Tunisia? At the time, he was one of the wealthiest people in Europe. And so how did he basically become a refugee? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of him as a refugee. And that's, you know, in fact, one of the sort of open questions about his life that can be interpreted differently. But basically what happened is Nisim Shamama um, sort of rose through the ranks of government service in Tunisia. He started out as a kind of you know, relatively low-level tax farmer, which a lot of Jews were um, in Tunisia really since the early modern period. Um, but he kind of was very savvy. He was very good at being a tax farmer, and he knew who the right people were to kind of cultivate as patrons. Um, so he became sort of increasingly important. He got larger, larger tax farms until he basically became the head tax collector for all of Tunisia. And then he was very close also with the prime minister, who at the time was Mustafa Khaznadar. And Khaznadar and he were sort of central to trying to get international loans for the Tunisian government. The Tunisian government, like lots of governments around the world, wanted to modernize, wanted to invest in infrastructure, wanted to build aqueducts and railroads and telegraph lines and all of these things. Um, and most places were doing so by getting these big international loans from bankers in London or Paris or Frankfurt. So Khaznadar and Nisim together, it's not totally clear what role Nisim played in this, but he certainly played some role, um, got one of these big international loans from a sort of sleazy banker who ends up playing a central role in the rest of the Shamama affair. But the 
loan, as many loans, especially in the Middle East and North Africa, did, ended up really hurting the finances of Tunisia because it was not a very <laughs> favorable loan for the Tunisian government. First of all, it had really high interest rates, had a lot of fees, and the Tunisian government had sort of basically overestimated its ability to pay. So they ended up sort of in this like financial quagmire where instead of this loan getting them out of the red, it just sunk them deep and deeper and deeper into debt. Um, and Khaznadar's reaction was, as most statesmen do, to raise taxes. Um, and this was incredibly unpopular. The, the majba was the head tax levied pretty much on all non-urbanites in Tunisia. So not in Tunis itself, but everywhere else. Um, and it was raised precipitously um, to try to pay off these enormous loans. And it sparked a rebellion. Um, and there was essentially a civil war um, between, you know, various sort of um, rural people and the Bay of Tunis, who was trying to kind of maintain his authority. Eventually, the civil war died down. But in the midst of this, um, which had, of course, started as a rebellion against higher taxes, understandably, Nisim Shamama, who was, you know, the highest ranking official in the Ministry of Finance, felt very vulnerable. Um, it's not totally clear what role his Jewishness played in that vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of evidence in general that Jews in positions of any power, especially financial power, were sort of more easily scapegoated. But one could also easily argue that if he had been a Muslim, he also would have been targeted just by virtue of being like, you know, an easy sort of um, target for for people who were angry about the rise in taxes. Nobody likes the tax. Nobody man. likes the tax. <laughs> man, exactly. And Mustafa Khazdarar was, you know, very, very powerful. He was literally the number two man in the kingdom. So he was a lot harder to attack. Um, so it seems pretty clear that that was a big factor. Now, later on, not sort of shortly before Nisim Shamama's death, there were all of these accus accusations that started to swirl that, in fact, the reason that he left was not just because he feared for his life or maybe not at all because he feared for his life, but really because he had been slowly embezzling all of this money, mm. basically with Khaznadar's permission, and that he wanted to get out with it. Now, that may have also been true. I, I tend to think that the fear was real. And there's there was some correspondence I was able to find between him and his sort of Jewish associates, where he's sort of like asking them to help him pack up his belongings really quickly. And he's sort of leaving things behind in a terrible mess, which suggests that he really did leave suddenly. Um, and he left with his great niece, Aziza, who's his kind of adopted daughter and her baby was literally four days old at the time. And he lived with, you know, she and her husband and the baby lived with Nisim. The baby's name was Nisim after Nisim Shamama. I just can't imagine that if they were planning, you know, a kind of premeditated escape, they would have done it at such a right. difficult moment with a, a four a four day old baby taking them on a long travel, you know, a long journey. It's it's sort of insane. So I tend to think that um, the the fear was real, even if there might also have been some serious financial mal malfeasance going on at the same time. So you mentioned Nisim's grandniece Aziza. Tell me a little bit more about his family dynamics and his life just before his death. And how was his wealth divided up after his death and in the will? Yeah. Okay. So Nisim was married multiple times at various times to two women at once. Bigamy was totally cool for Jews in North Africa at the time, but he never had children. 
of his own, which suggests that there was some sort of biological problem on his end. Aziza um, was the daughter of his nephew, a man named Shlomo Shamama, but everybody called him Kaid Momo. But she was sort of estranged from her father, seemingly at a pretty young age, and had lived with Nisim in Tunis and then followed him first to Paris and then eventually to Livorno. And she had lived first in his house and then in Paris. He got her and her family like a separate apartment above his, and then they eventually bought some houses next to each other sort of matching townhouses. Um, and then in Italy, he bought this sort of big palazzo and they all seem to have lived together in the big palazzo. Um, when he was still in Paris, he wrote a will in which he divided his estate, half going to Aziza and her young son, Nisim, who at the time he wrote the will was uh, four years old. Then um, the, the other half of his estate was going to be divided evenly between two of his three living nephews who were his closest male relatives. The will, however, was kept secret. Nobody knew about it or, mm. you know, even nobody was even sure it existed. So when he died, which was in January of 1873, and he died quite suddenly, he literally woke up one morning with a stomach ache and was dead a few hours later, um, which happened fairly frequently yeah. in the 19th century. <laughs> um, so there was a real kind of like, I mean, the, the, the correspondence from that period is quite fascinating to read because there was, a, there was a serious kind of information gap. People did not know what was going to happen. People did not know, you know, he had this big fortune. He didn't have any biological children. There was a real question mark about what was going to happen to his wealth. Uh, fairly soon after he died, the, the Livornese police came and they sort of commandeered the situation and searched the house and found a will. And the will was read publicly a couple days after, um, not immediately, but afterwards. And the, the will was written in Judeo-Arabic, which for those who aren't familiar is Arabic written in Hebrew letters. But of course, there are many dialects of Judeo-Arabic just as there are different dialects of Arabic. And so the, the Judeo-Arabic the Nisim used was the dialect of Arabic spoken by Tunisians in general and most more specifically by Tunisians. And this, by the way, was almost certainly the only language that Nisim Shabama was literate in. He spoke Arabic, as did everybody, um, and he almost certainly read Hebrew, but unless you had a very kind of advanced rabbinic education, you wouldn't really be able to read or write in Hebrew. So it's, you know, it's it's quite normal that he would have written in Judeo-Arabic. He had a lot of course, we have a lot of his correspondence in Arabic, but it was clearly written by secretaries, of whom he had many. He had many secretaries who came with him from Tunisia to Paris and then to Livorno. And they helped him kind of manage his life in general. Yes, in, exactly. With the language differences. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Although it's not clear how he dealt with French and Italian, neither of which he spoke either. Um, it seems that he basically sort of surrounded himself with Tunisians, both Jews okay. and Muslims, actually. Um, and that a lot of his sort of social world was other Tunisians, okay. family members that he had brought over with him, not just Aziza some rabbis that were sort of like his personal rabbis, plus his secretaries. And, you know, there, it was a little bit hard to get a kind of sense of his like day-to-day -day existence yeah. in Paris in particular, where there weren't, there wasn't a community of Tunisian Jews. But, uh, you know, the little bit that I got, there was a newspaper article that very briefly mentioned a soiree, like a sort of evening party at Nizim Tramama's with all of the colonies Tunisian, like the Tunisian colony, the Tunisian like 
people. Expats, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> the Tunisian community in Paris. So so that also suggests to me that there was a kind of... And there's, there's another article that mentions him going on a trip to somewhere else in France and he has a retinue of like 40 people. Oh, okay. So retinue. he's traveling with uh, the big so posse. He lived in, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, exactly. He had a serious entourage going. Um, in Livorno, he would have had less trouble meeting other Tunisian Jews because there was quite a lot of back and forth, especially with the Grana community, the community mm-hmm. of quote-unquote Livornese Jews living in Tunisia, and particularly in Tunis. And so there was an enormous amount of sort of networks and people sending family members back and forth and people traveling back and forth. And indeed, there were a few sort of Grana Jews who participated in his funeral um, in Livorno that suggests that he was in touch with basically his Tuni- fellow Tunisian Jews okay. um, while he was living there. Anyway, right. So he dies. They find this will. They read it. They discover that he's left half of his fortune to Aziza and to two nephews. But then, of course, there are people who are sort of expecting to get something from the estate and are cut out of the will. And that's predominantly Aziza's father, Kaid Momo, um, who is the third living nephew. And the reason that he's expecting to get a large chunk of the estate is that Jewish law, kind of like Islamic law, basically determines a set way of dividing estates. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, according to Jewish law, if a man dies without children, then the estate is supposed to go to his closest male relatives. So for Nisin, that was sort of undis- indisputably his three living nephews. Kaid Mumu and he had clearly fallen out. Mm-hmm. Um, there are traces of this in the archives. It seems to be largely a financial dispute as so often Classic. is the case. Classic. Um, but there's some suggestion that they didn't get along so well beforehand anyway. Um, but Mumu was not ready to just, you know, throw his hands up and say, okay, never mind. This was this was really a huge fortune. I mean, as you mentioned, he was one of the richest people in Europe. He was not as rich as the Rothschild who died shortly before him in Paris, but close, right? Yeah. It was a, on the same order. He was like the point zero one percent okay of society so he was really very wealthy so even you know momo mumu not getting a he would he was expecting a third of the estate and not getting that was a matter of losing nine million francs Mm -hmm. approximately so he sort of went into action and part of what happened also is that the tunisian government by this point had started basically adopting this narrative that Nisim Shamama had embezzled a large amount of funds and that they that Nisim's estate owed the Tunisian government a whole lot of money. They started working on various ways of getting their money back. One of the ways was by getting Mumu to sign an agreement saying that he would give the Tunisian government 25% of his share in the estate, mm. which again, you know, even a fourth of 9 million francs is quite a lot of money. And so the Tunisian government became sort of immediately involved. I mean, part of the best archival sources for the case come from the the correspondence between the Tunisian basically consul. He wasn't officially recognized as a consul because of disputes between the Tunisian government and the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans didn't want the Tunisians to have consulates mm-hmm. because that would suggest sort of full sovereignty. And they wanted the Tunisia to be essentially an Ottoman province. Um, but he was a man who was for all intents and purposes the Ottoman consul in Livorno. And he writes about, you know, all the sort of confusion swirling in the days and weeks after Nishim Mama died, basically about whether the will that was discovered would be valid or not. Um, and the the sort of 
main question that they landed on was the question of Nisim Shamama's nationality. Quick question. How common was it for the, a state, a government like the Tunisian government to get involved in like these these wills or uh, after death affairs of, of their officials? Was it just had you seen anything else like that before? Or was it just really with Nisim because of his high status and his amount of money? So Nisim's first patron in the government was a man named Ibn Ayed. And Ibn Ayed had similarly sort of absconded from Tunis, and he clearly had left, not in the midst of a war, but just <laughs> when he thought that he was getting caught for all of the embezzlement that he was engaged in. And then he managed to take a lot of money with him to Paris. And it seems clear that part of the reason that Nisim was accused of embezzlement, and perhaps, you know, had embezzled, was because everybody knew that Ibn Ayyad had done so. The Tunisian government did not go after Ibn Ayyad's estate, in part because it, Ibn Ayyad lived for much longer. Um, but they did send a very important official, a man named Khair al-Din, who became very famous in Tunisian history later on. He was a sort of reformist statesman. Um, he ended up also partly in the Ottoman Empire after he left the service of the Bay of Tunis. Ibn Ayyad had, you know, the Tunisian government had mounted a lawsuit against Ibn Ayyad in Paris and essentially lost. They hadn't really managed to recover the funds that they accused Ibn Ayyad of owing them. It's not clear to me whether part of the reason that they chose to go after Nisim Shamam's estate was because they had been unsuccessful right. with the Ibn Ayyad lawsuit. It also, but but it's clear that, you know, Shamama was worried about lawsuits. Actually, Ibn Ayyad himself was suing Nisim Shamama <laughs> during Shamama's lifetime. He he outlived Shamama by almost 10 years. And it, it's clear that for Shamama, the question of nationality, right? So you started this question about, you know, why did he become an Italian? Mm -hmm. um, it's clear that for Shamama, the, the reason to naturalize as an Italian was about jurisdiction. Mm. He was worried that Tunisians like Ibn Ayyad or perhaps people from the government would sue him and he would be forced to go back to Tunisia. But if he were Italian, then the jurisdiction would more clearly be based in Italy or France or somewhere else in Europe. and. Perhaps from the experience of the Ibn Ayyad case, he sort of had his hunch that things would go better for him mm -hmm. if any lawsuit against him was based in Europe. So so like you've, you've said, this whole quagmire comes down to nationality and law in Italy, which had just become a unified kingdom in, in 1848. Its civil code wasn't passed until 1865, about 20 years later. So it was still a very new country trying to negotiate social and, and legal structures at the time of Nisim's death in 1873. And a man named um, uh, Pascale, I don't want to butcher the rest of his the rest of his name. Mancini. Mancini. Uh, yeah. Pascale Mancini was was at the center of all of this. Um, can you tell us about his concept of um, this concept of nationality as as principle and and mm -hmm. how uh, Mancini used this in, in Nisim's case? Right. Yeah. As I mentioned, the the question of the validity of the will all came down to Nisim's nationality. And, and that is, as you say, due to Mancini. Mancini was this sort of star international lawyer. Um, he helped write Italy's civil code in 1865. And his whole rise to fame was because he married the ideas of nationalism with international law. Mm. Um, he basically figured out a way to justify the tenets of nationalism in international law. Um, and one of the ways he did that was by saying that nationality was so important to a person 
that it shouldn't be, it shouldn't continue to matter if that person was not in their national state. So an Italian was, you know, so wedded to Italian law that that law should be respected, even if the Italian was in France or in Tunisia or in Germany. Um, and that is essentially the basis of the nationality principle, that at least for matters of private law, your national law follows you around like a bubble no matter where you are. So if you die in France and you are an Italian, then your national law applies to your estate and your will or whatever, you know, your succession is adjudicated according to Italian law. Same goes for marriage and divorce and child custody and all other aspects of personal status. So I imagine that international law and certainly this this nationality principle is like fairly new <laughs> um, in, yes, in the, in the yeah. 1900s. Were other um, right. international lawyers having similar conversations about um, about the about nationality principle um, or is yeah. Mancini pretty much on the forefront of this? Mancini is the sort of poster child like he's the he's or maybe the spokesperson but he's got a whole bunch of people who agree with him that the nationality principle is a good idea and so 1873 the year that Nizam Shabama dies is also the year that the Institut de droit international the Institute of International Law is founded which is the first sort of professional association of international lawyers Mancini is elected the first president because he is the kind of elder statesman of international law widely recognized as such in Europe. And his main sort of um, uh, hobby horse in the Institut de droit international is to try to get uh, a sort of agreed upon um, language for instituting the nationality principle in every country's sort of national nationality legislation. Um, and so that's part of why he writes it into the Italian Civil Code. The Italian Civil Code is definitely one of the very first Leg pieces of legislation to adopt the nationality principle, but it becomes very popular. It gets adopted not only all over Europe, but also in Latin America and elsewhere. Um, and it becomes a kind of well-known approach to what is called private international law um, or conflicts of law in the United States. So what were the specifics of, of Nisim's case and how did his religious status as a, as a Tunisian Jew complicate these questions that they were asking about his, his identity? Right. So once they figured out uh, that Nisim's inheritance all came down to a question of nationality, um, there were sort of four main possibilities. One was that he was Tunisian, right? That he had died, that, that he was born in Tunis, um, that he had never lost his Tunisian nationality, in part because Tunisia, like the Ottoman Empire, didn't recognize expatriation or voluntary expatriation. And in fact, they cited the Ottoman nationality law of 1869 as sort of, you know, not not because they, interestingly, the Italian courts did not view Tunisia as part of the Ottoman Empire. Okay. They viewed it as an autonomous state. And this was just part of basically European diplomatic politics at the time. And it was largely about the sort of colonial um, ambitions of Italy and France. And for them, it was going to be much easier to colonize Tunisia if it wasn't part of the Ottoman right. Empire. <laughs> the Ottomans were just a kind of, you know basically a sort of um, symbolic authority and actually authority was for and theory. all intents and purposes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, which I think, you know, very much undersells the complexity of the relationship of sovereignty for sure. But in any case, um, they still sort of looked to the Ottoman Empire as, you know, well, if the Ottomans do it, then it makes sense the Tunisians do it. So one option was that Nizam Shamama had never lost his uh, Tunisian nationality. The other option is that he had become Italian and indeed, he applied for Italian nationality in 1866. 
He even got a sort of decree of naturalization from the king, but he never followed the instructions in the decree. <laughs> oh, the, he didn't the, follow the, the fine itself, print. Right. He basically didn't follow the fine print. The decree itself says the decree has to be registered with an Italian official and he has to take an oath of fealty within six months of getting the decree. He didn't do those things. Why? That's a big question. And it's clear, though, that, you know, for his purposes, it didn't really matter. Everybody still considered him Italian after this decree. Um, he joined a sort of leading Italian charitable association in Paris. When he went to Italy and registered registered his domicile there, he declared himself Italian and everybody believed him. I mean, the, you know, the, the notary mm -hmm. public in Livorno dutifully wrote him down as an Italian national. And it was only after his death that people raised questions, basically like, wait a minute, it's not clear that this guy ever actually became Italian. So one possibility was that basically it didn't matter that he hadn't registered the decree, that he had still become Italian, that everybody thought he was Italian. So he had died Italian. Another possibility was that he had lost his Tunisian nationality, that leaving Tunisia and applying for a new nationality was essentially equivalent to self-expatriation. Mm. And so he was no longer Tunisian, but he had failed to become Italian, so he was stateless. He died with no nationality. This was a kind of unusual argument because statelessness was considered a kind of anomaly yeah. in international law. It wasn't, it, it, unlike the sort of post-World War I right. context where there was just an enormous amount of statelessness, it wasn't ever considered a good thing, but it was like obvious that lots and lots of people were stateless. In the 19th century, it was like people who fell through the cracks. It was very bizarre and it was not considered good, but it did sometimes happen. So that was a possibility. And then you asked about his Jewishness. And that turned out to produce a sort of fourth option of his nationality, which was that being Jewish was itself a nationality and that thus his national law for the purposes of the nationality principle should be Jewish law. Mm. Now, this was a sort of odd argument, even for the time, in part because everybody recognized that most of the time when when jurists were talking about nationality, they were talking about nationality associated with a state. And of course, Jews didn't have a state. Mm -hmm. But there was also a kind of new sense in which nationality was very important. This was really the you know height of nationalism. Mm -hmm. And there was this question that was very seriously considered by some of the jurists involved of whether Jews, since they are a nationality, should thus basically constitute their own national group despite not having a state with their own national law. And that if Italy is serious about the nationality principle, then they should respect Jewish law for Jewish nationals, especially those who might be deemed stateless. Mainly this argument came up in the context of, well, if Nisim Shamama had died stateless, normally Italian law would apply to stateless people. But the argument was, well, in this instance, that really doesn't make sense because he's Jewish. He has a national law and that is Jewish law. So if he is stateless, then you should apply Jewish law to his estate. Do you so do you think that had Nisim been um, Muslim or Christian, would they still try to follow religious law? Would religious law still be a consideration in his case at all? If Nisim Shumama had died Muslim, um, then Sharia certainly would have been a consideration because if he had died, if he had been deemed to have died uh, Tunisian, then Tunisian's inheritance is definitely sort of regulated by is under the jur jurisdiction of Chaldee courts. So for sure, 
And I would say also that, you know, on the one hand, this is a very Jewish story because Nisim Shemama was Jewish and because Jewishness was this major sort of question at the center of what is his nationality. But this is not a story that is unique to Jews. And indeed, there was a similar case of both uh, disputed inheritance and questionable nationality that arose about uh, 15 years after his death which is the subject of another wonderful book that I think, I, I can't remember if there was an Ottoman history podcast about it, but Mohammed Waldi's A Slave Between Empires oh. is about um, Hussein ibn Abdallah, who was a Mamluk in the court of the Tunisian Bay and who also died in Italy. And his in- inheritance was disputed not so much um, because there was a question of whether he'd become an Italian national. He had never naturalized as an Italian but because the Ottoman state claimed jurisdiction over his mm. estate, the Ottoman consul in uh, Florence at the time, because there was a question of whether a Tunisian, this was already post uh, the colonization of Tunisia by France. So there was a question of whether a Tunisian who died abroad should be considered an Ottoman or a French subject. Um, and this was the sort of the, the nature of the dispute over that inheritance. Okay, so how did... How did spoiler alert? How did the yeah. how did the case turn out, and and what were the ramifications immediately after? Are there any long lasting legal um, impacts that this case had on on the Italian um, legal and and justice system, and thinking about nationality and and religion? And- to put it very briefly, and um, the 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 case went through multiple rounds of appeal, as everybody sort of expected. When there's so much money at stake, there's a lot of appeal. There's, there are many appeals. So um, it went to first the, the Court of First Instance Livorno, and then the Court of uh, Appeals in Lucca, and then the Court of Cassation in Florence, which basically reversed the initial ruling, which had been that Nisim Shamama had died stateless. And once that was reversed, it became clear that the court was sort of leaning towards declaring him Tunisian, which it did finally in the final ruling in 1883 in the Court of Appeals in Florence. And declaring him Tunisian when he died, basically said, no, he never acquired Italian nationality, but he also didn't lose his Tunisian nationality. And this was really a deference in deference to the Tunisian government's own interpretation of Tunisian nationality law. And also, again, drawing on Ottoman nationality law and saying, yeah, there is no voluntary expatriation. The Bey never gave him permission to expatriate himself. Thus, he must have still been Tunisian when he died. Because Jews in Tunisia were under the jurisdiction of Jewish law, of halakha, for, again, matters of personal status, then the court in Florence had to apply Jewish law to his estate. But they did so in a way that was rather unexpected. Now, everybody sort of knew that there was a possibility that Jewish law would apply, because, of course, if he was Tunisian, then it was going to be halakha that sort of determined how his will was going to be read. And from very early on, it seemed clear that the will wasn't going to be considered kosher, according to Jewish law, essentially. It lacked certain important formula, formulae that were sort of central to a will that was valid under Jewish law. However, there were also from very early on, from just months after Nisim died, disputed disputes among rabbis about the validity of Nisim's will according to Jewish law. And this sort of, you know, this sort of parallel discussion among rabbinic authorities swirled while Italian lawyers and French lawyers and um, Tunisian government officials were discussing this question of nationality. There was this sort of parallel 
discussion of Jewish legal principles and how they applied in particular to Nisim's will. Ultimately, though, it wasn't really up to the rabbis. It was up to this Italian, to these Italian judges, three Italian judges, who of course had no training in Jewish law and who relied mainly on these legal briefs written by Italians with some familiarity with Jewish law. And, and interestingly, they, you know, both sides also hired Italians, Jew, Italian Jews, including Benamozeg. That's how he ended up writing for the case. Benamozeg was in some ways the most obviously qualified because he was a rabbi, but he wrote a really kooky uh, <laughs> book in, in response to the question of whether the will was valid. And the judges basically ignored him for the most part oh, wow, okay. and relied largely on a legal brief written by these two Jewish lawyers who it's not clear if they had much training in Jewish law, but they clearly had some access to the Jewish texts. And they wrote these very kind of accessible briefs sort of breaking down what Jewish law might have to say in support for saying that the will was kosher. I think that the Italian judges were sort of inclined to validate the will because it seemed like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. It seemed clear that that's what Nisim Shamama wanted. And there were arguments to be made, according to Jewish law, for why one could say that the will was valid. And um, so I think it was sort of, you know, they thought it was a good idea to <laughs> to respect Nisim Shamama's wishes and to give Aziza her share of the inheritance. Of course, by this time, the the family members had all run out of money paying their lawyers' I'm fees sure. <laughs> and, you know, waiting for this inheritance to come. It had been literally 10 years by the time the final ruling came down. This is where that sleazy banker that I mentioned earlier, a man named Emile Dernanger, who was originally from Frankfurt, but moved to Paris and established himself as a banker. And he's the one who gave Tunisia its first international loan. He knew Nisim through that experience when Nisim moved to Paris. He spent some time with him, you know, negotiating new loans. And he knew, he must have known about Nisim's death. And so after Nisim's death, a few years after when people were starting to be desperate for money, he went around and signed agreements with each of the, of the potential heirs, basically saying, I'll give you some cash up front in, re in return for your giving me your rights to the share of inheritance when the will is finally adjudicated. So basically, the heirs all got a small portion of what they could have, um, and this banker made off with the largest sum. And he also struck a deal with the Tunisian government to kind of give them a share, basically to sort of wow. stop them from further appeals and kind of say, okay, you will get whatever money you claim from Nisim's estate. So the lawyers made a lot of money because they were paid huge fees, um, and the banker made a lot of money. The Tunisian government didn't make much money. And by the time the, the will was finally adjudicated, um, the Tunisian government was already under French colon colonial rule. So wow. they also didn't have all that much autonomy. So things had changed a lot by 1883 when the final ruling came down. You asked a question about what is the significance for this case for Italian law. And interestingly, it didn't have a whole lot of significance. It gets cited once in a while, but Part of that is structural because Italian law is a, is a sort of civil law system based on a code, much like France's. You don't have the same sort of um, importance given to precedent the way you do in Anglo-American legal systems, where uh, the precedent of a court case can become incredibly central and get cited over and over again. That doesn't mean that, you know, the, the rulings, especially of courts of appeal, were published precisely so that lawyers and judges could refer to them. 
But this was one of those cases that was strange enough that it didn't have like a very obvious set of applications. I think that the, you know, when I first started working on this case, I was very keen to try to figure out some way in which the case was important to law afterwards, mm-hmm. um, because that tends to be a way in which legal historians can make make a good argument for spending a whole book on one legal case. Um, and I finally concluded that, you know, it's not that it's totally unimportant, but that's not its main interest. Its main interest is really to kind of reveal all of the different arguments being made, particularly about nationality and citizenship, as they get imagined across the Mediterranean and across this sort of imagined divide between Europe and North Africa and the Middle East, Christianity, Christendom, and the Islamic world. Um, And those are very real categories for the international lawyers in particular involved um, and how they're sort of thinking about how law applies, how to incorporate Tunisian law, how to incorporate Jewish law, um, how to think about all of this in this, as you said, sort of emerging field of international law, which really is brand new. Um, and this whole idea of the nationality principle is pretty brand new. So trying to kind of expand it beyond what are usually, frankly, the presumed borders of international law, which is Europe and the Christian world. So from what I understand, Italy today has has very hotly contested citizenship laws. If whether or not they're connected, um, you, you let us know. But um, what are uh, Italy's uh, citizenship laws today and how do they conceive of like the Italian nation or, or uh, being an Italian national? Italy's citizenship laws today are not wildly different from what they were in the 19th century, as far as I can tell. Um, the thing about Italian citizenship law in the 19th century that is quite different from what is going on today is that, especially in the time of the Shamama case, so in the 1860s, 70s, Italy was still, like the borders of Italy were still very much up for grabs. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you know, the Risorgimento, the movement for Italian national unity really gets going in 1848, but it's a long process, right? 1860s, they get a whole bunch of important regions like Tuscany, the capital moves to Florence in 1861, um, but they still want other regions that aren't part of them. Rome and the Papal States don't become part of the Italian state until 1871, so really shortly before Nizim Shamama dies. And even after that, which is the sort of last major land acquisition um, for a long time, there's still all of these other areas where there are Italian speakers that Italy thinks, oh, this should eventually become part of the Italian nation state. And so many of their citizenship laws are based on the idea that um, this irredentism can be partially realized through granting of citizenship. So people who are from Italian-speaking regions with Italian fathers, quote-unquote, can much more easily claim Italian nationality or Italian citizenship than a sort of true foreigner. And this is something, this because Mancini not only is, of course, the architect of the nationality principle, but also gets hired to work on the Shamama case. He gets mm. hired by Aziza to represent the argument that Nisim Shamama died in Italian. And his whole case about why Nisim died in Italian is based on the idea that Nisim's parents came from Livorno, that his father was a Livornese Jew which, by the way, probably isn't true, but this is something that Nisim himself said. And again, you could say these things and until there was a big inheritance dispute, like nobody, nobody really checked would up care, on you. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> cared. 
So uh, Mancini's whole point was, well, you know, Livornese Jews or Livornese Christians, anybody who is Livornese, even if they have lost their Italian nationality, should be able to recuperate it basically just by moving to Italy and saying, I want to be an Italian. And this is part of this vision of greater Italy. Um, and, and for him, you know, it wasn't so much the Livornese Jews that he was really thinking about. He, he helped write this into the law in 1865, but it wasn't the Livornese Jews in Tunis that he was thinking about. It was the Italians in the Fiume, right, in places like, um, you know, in, in countries that are now Slovenia, which Italy thought maybe one day would be part of Italy, right? Mm -hmm. Places like Trieste, which weren't, still weren't part of Italy, but were Italian speaking, and they really wanted eventually to become part of Italy. So there was this sense of, you know, a kind of broader notion of what Italianness and Italian nationality meant. Um, and eventually this has, this, that particular argument does have really important repercussions, especially in the 20th century um, around the Mediterranean, because you have all of these expatriated Italian communities in Algeria, in mm -hmm. Tunisia, in Egypt, especially, mm -hmm. where, you know, once the process of decolonization starts, you have a lot of people returning, mm -hmm. returning to Italy. Many of them, of course, have lived their entire lives in North Africa and the Middle East. Um, but they they choose to come back to Italy upon decolonization. And there's, you know, that sort of rhetoric of, well, these are Italians, even though they haven't been in Italy, um, is a kind of a holdover from some of the irredentism that you see in the 19th century. So one last fun question, or not last fun question, one fun question. <laughs> um, what was your favorite part about writing this book, whether it be a specific person, whether it be working with a specific source? What was your favorite part of, of this project? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I, I would say the, the most fun was trying to bring these characters to life. Um, there's one character whom we haven't really, there's one sort of personage that we haven't really talked about who is one of my favorites. Um, he's, he's not a very likable person. There's a, it's a story <laughs> filled with lots of anti-heroes, actually. But I find him to be a, a fascinating person. His name is Eliahu al-Meliach, mm -hmm. or Leonel Melik in um, Italian and French. He was a Jew, originally from Algeria. Um, he moved to Tunisia as a young man and kind of made his career there in Tunis, um, though with the status of a French protege, because as an Algerian, he was considered French um, under the sort of extraterritorial regime that that was um, uh, that kind of, you know, managed the status of foreigners um, and foreign subjects in Tunisia and the Ottoman Empire. And El-Melech basically kind of sold himself as a really good intermediary for the Shamama case. He came to Hussein, who was the Mamluk um, that I mentioned earlier, who was sort of appointed the Tunisian government's representative in Florence. And he said, hey, I can help you out with talking to the rabbis and getting their opinions and talking to the heirs and basically being an intermediary between the Tunisian government and the Jews. And mm -hmm. he was also, he built himself as a translator. He knew Judeo-Arabic, he knew Hebrew, he knew Arabic. He also seemed to know French and Italian, or at least French. And he ended up getting very involved in the lawsuit. He ended up writing his own legal briefs which were published in Hebrew, French, and Italian. He probably wrote them first in Hebrew and then self-translated them. You know, he he was the one who made some of the most outlandish legal arguments. Okay. And he was the most interested in um, arguing that Nisim Shamama had died, that his nationality was Jewish, that Jewish law was his national law. 
And I, I liked working on him in part because his personality shone through the, the strongest of all in these archival documents. And I have this vivid recollection of my very first trip to Tunis when I was just starting to work on this project. And I didn't yet know if it would be a book or maybe just an article. Um, and I got to the archives and first of all, I was like, wow, there's like dozens and dozens of boxes filled with correspondence just about Nisim Shamama. I think this is probably more than an article. Mm -hmm. um, but also I started reading some of the correspondence with El Meliach, which is in Arabic and French, a little bit in Italian, um, a little bit of Judeo-Arabic. And it's, you know, it's he he's just this really pugnacious <laughs> guy who just wants to fight with everybody. And he, you know, after the lawsuit is over, he's the one who's like, I don't want it to be over. And he makes another round of appeal. <laughs> after, which 10 go after 10 years? After 10 years. And then he pre proceeds to sue everybody else, including Hussein, his, for for his former employer, you know, for various unpaid wages and all of these things. And he basically dies embroiled in all of these lawsuits. He goes back to Tunis eventually. And it's his son, his eldest son, who kind of settles the lawsuits after his death, probably because he was like, I don't want to no deal with this. Yeah. Of this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and and I remember being in the archives and thinking, wow, this this is a character and I want to try to bring this guy to life. And and it was it was working on people like him, trying to bring Aziza more to life, mm -hmm. trying to getting to know the lawyers, including the Italian lawyers, who are really fascinating. And they're all they're all of these bit players, you know, some of whom ended up playing less of a role in the book but who at various times I spent months with in the mm -hmm. archives, you know, just really immersed in their correspondence. And they're, they're all just so interesting. And I, I felt like part of what motivated me to write the book was the idea that this legal case had all of these really interesting things to say about nationality, about citizenship, about this sort of legal dispute across the Mediterranean. But it also was a chance to bring these historical figures to life mm -hmm. in a way that I hadn't been able to do with previous projects. So that was definitely a lot of fun. The very last archival trip I made to Tunis, I also found this amazing source, which was a very detailed um, list of all of the different properties in Tunis and its surroundings that Nisim Shamama had owned, mm -hmm. which eventually was sold at auction by the French colonial government sort of after the, the trial had gone. And that was also totally fascinating because it gave me this whole other insight into who Nisim had been in Tunis and just how wealthy he was and all of this real estate investment that he had sort of, you know, speculated on essentially. And he owned some property. I mean, the, he owned these just incredibly high profile properties, yeah. one of which was the former consulate of France in this gorgeous beautiful house built right at the entrance of the wow. Medina of the kind of old city. And I, I was shocked. I had no idea that he had owned that. And I, it really just gave me a sense also of just how, what it was like to be Nisim Shabana in Tunis at the height of his power just before he left. And that was also really fun. Um, and I was able to kind of like walk around the city and oh, try to so find cool. some, yeah, I like hunted down some of these properties. And that was really fun. Well, I think anybody reading the book would be able to tell that you you one enjoyed your research. It sounds and from <laughs> yeah, from the, from talking to you and from the, and from the writing, um, and that you really were able to bring out these characters. Which brings me to my last question about microhistory. Why 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 microhistory for this particular project? Had had you done microhistory before, and uh, what can historians learn about the past through through narrating a single person or legal trial, community, or object? I had not really done microhistory before. And for a long time, I kind of resisted the label 
for no real good reason. I just didn't <laughs> like being pigeonholed. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but then eventually I came around and I embraced it. And, and I think that, you know, it wasn't so much that I went in thinking, okay, I'm going to write a microhistory. It was really that I discovered the case and it was so rich and there was so much there. Um, and it felt like a story to me. You know, it really felt like mm -hmm. this drama that I was seeing unfolding. I mean, I did a lot of piecing together and believe me, like I went down so many rabbit holes rabbit holes and things that didn't end up in the book but i i f i felt like it deserved a kind of narrative treatment that i felt like was only going to work as a microhistory i think that what i also came around to eventually also of course i ended up reading some of the kind of more theoretical work about microhistory and i would say that francesca trivellato's approach was the one that was maybe most influential mm -hmm. i was also very influenced by simona ceruti both of whom to some degree, come out of this sort of Italian microhistorical school, but both of them were also interested in kind of global microhistory. And their point was that a microhistory, you know, it's not going to answer all of the questions. It's not going to do a great job of showing change over time. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be able to really scale up in a, you know, super um, convincing way. But what it can do is disrupt what you think you know about certain categories. And that's really what I found this case to do. It really disrupted. Certainly what I had read in the secondary literature about citizenship, especially in North Africa and the Middle East, it's not a very robust literature, but it, I found it very problematic. Um, and I, for a long time, I was sort of stuck in these categories, particularly the categories of citizenship and nationality, and thinking about them through this European lens. And it, it, through this case, I was able to finally sort of say, okay, you know what? A lot of this just doesn't work and mm -hmm. we need a whole new approach to understanding what I ended up calling legal belonging, which is this sort of more abstract category, which I felt like was much better suited, certainly to the North African context that Nisim Shamama came from, but more generally to a kind of transnational case that crossed over between North Africa, the Ottoman Empire, and Europe. And so it's that sort of disruptive potential that mm -hmm. I think microhistory can be really good at. Um, and again, it's not for everybody. It's not for every project. Right. But I, I would say, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it was also the, the luck of having found this for my second project. I felt a little bit more liberated mm -hmm. to just go for it and a little bit more, you know, willing to take a risk on, uh, writing a whole book about this obscure guy that nobody had ever heard of. It paid off. It was really, it was, I, again, really very enjoyable read. As somebody who's interested in in the in the Mediterranean, but just as somebody who likes good writing, it was just good. I, I appreciated the effort you put into the narrative style. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Ottoman History Podcast. It's fabulous, and it's <laughs> such a pleasure to be on here. And um, and I'm just so glad that you guys are interested in the Maghreb, you know, and that you're yeah. including books about North Africa. And I I I have always benefited so much from you know, just the work that is being done in, in sort of more like heartlands Ottoman history. Mm -hmm. And I think it's such a great sign that North Africanists are increasingly also Ottomanists mm -hmm. and Ottomanists are increasingly also working in North Africa. Um, and this is, you know, this book for the first time took me to the Ottoman archives, the Bush, well, formerly known as the Bashkanlik in Istanbul. And that was an amazing, you know, discovery. And I just loved working in those sources. And I feel like it's it's you know one real potential growth area for Mediterranean history, mm -hmm. Ottoman history, and Maghrebi history is to bring these fields together more strongly. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for spending this hour with me. I'm, again, I'm so sorry I missed you in, actually in Charlottesville, but this was really oh, nice. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad. No, and, and absolutely. It was such a it was such a blast. Thank you for your excellent questions. And I hope we get to meet in person soon. That concludes our interview with Jessica Margolin about the Shamama case, contesting citizenship across the modern Mediterranean. If you're looking to learn more about the death of Nisim Shamama and legal belonging in the Mediterranean, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll find a quick link to the book as well as other resources in this interview's bibliography. You'll also find tons of other episodes on the Ottoman Empire and the Mediterranean world. That's all for now. I'm Brittany White. Thanks for listening.